Gracious God, we ask that you would speak to us today, that you would encourage us today, that you would challenge us today, and we pray that you would help us to encounter you today. Lord, sometimes our lives get overly busy. Sometimes our lives become overly distracted and we lose sight of who you are and where you are and what you're doing. And so we pray that you would refocus us today, open our eyes that we might see you better. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, you may remember it. You've probably heard it. You've it's actually a good chance you've even prayed it, but the prayer goes something like this, God is great and God is good, let us thank Him for our food. Uh, my question for us today is simply this, do we still believe that about the one who we thank? Do we still believe that God is great and do we still believe that God is good? Obviously, being in church right now, you know that the proper answer that you're supposed to say is yes, but is that what we really believe? Do we believe that God is good enough? Do we believe that God is great enough? And maybe more to the point, who's to say? How do we determine if God is both great and God is also good? I mean, is it up to the, uh, the pastors and the priests? Is it up to the crowds or maybe the churches? Is it up to each individual on their own? Is it a feeling? Is it an experience? Is it a conclusion? Is it a revelation? How do we know that God is good? How do we know that God is great? And even if we, we just know it's true, I still regularly hear Christians who dismiss what they call the, the God of the Old Testament in favor of the Jesus of the New Testament because the Old Testament God, while being great, seems to be kind of mean. So not good. He's great, but not good. Whereas they then go on to believe that the God of the New Testament, the Jesus God, he's good, but not as great. I mean, the love and the acceptance and forgiveness, that's fantastic, but, I mean, and the feeding of the 5,000, that's cool, but there's not as much thunder there. He's good, but less great. And the odd chance that I get to comment, and I don't normally get to comment, but when I do, I first, you know, make the point that God doesn't change, and then if God did change, they're reading the whole book backwards because God's way more loving and forgiving and compassionate in the Old Testament than He is in the New Testament, but that's a whole other thing entirely. But much more importantly, and the greater fallacy that we're trying to address is that we don't actually get a vote in the personhood of God or the scope of God or the size of God or the character of God. Who are we to say who God is? That's as silly as saying that a bunch of us were in a meeting, and we were talking, we're Presbyterians, so we were in a meeting, and we all decided about you, we were talking about you, it was weird, but, but that's what we were doing, and we all decided that you're actually a bunny, a bunny rabbit. Uh, and it is so, because we say, we had a vote. There was a motion, someone seconded it, all in favor, we did it, you're a bunny. Because uh, you seem nice enough, uh, you're fun to be around, you're a little fuzzy, uh, you're a little stinky at times, uh, you do eat salads, and therefore we have concluded you're a, a bunny. 
At which point you're thinking, seriously? But, and then secondly, you're thinking, we're a little bit crazy, but mostly you're thinking, it doesn't matter what you think about me at all, because that's not who I am. It's almost a, a consequence of being that no one else can completely redefine you. Sure, sure, we can name you, we can categorize you, shape you maybe, but we can't make you into something you're not. And yet this is what we try and do to God all of the time. C.S. Lewis makes the point that it used to be that we saw God as the judge and jury and we were the ones on trial. That, throughout time, that is how we've seen it. And yet somehow in the last couple of decades, we've made ourselves the judge and the jury. And we've put God on trial. God, how could you? God, that's not the way that was supposed to go. God, that wasn't good. God, that wasn't great. But in this, we've made the mistake of thinking that God is not great. And as it turns out, that's not something we get a vote on. Equally troubling is that too many have come to believe that God is also not good as if it were up to us to judge God's goodness, which is particularly brash given that He made goodness. He's the author, arbitrator, and measure of it. So again, who are we to say? The question we're trying to figure out today is, is our God, is your God, have we made God too small in our eyes? Which brings us to our series. Because here's the thing, if we've made God too small in our eyes, it's no wonder then that our faith or our salvation or even our eternity have become too small as well. If God isn't very good or very great for that matter, then neither is the gospel, which is probably why we've since boiled it down to a mere transaction, saying a prayer, receiving Jesus, coming to Christ, a personal relationship. Because all of those things are a little simpler, a little smaller. They're all about us. There's something we can control. It's something we can change. And yet, maybe we've lost sight of our God who is so much bigger than all of that, not to mention better. And as I've been saying all along throughout this series, it's not that any of those things are, are bad or wrong. They're just too small. And as our focus goes that small, we start to distort and even try and domesticate our view of God. As if all God cares about is keeping those who have jumped through the proper hoops safe and blessed. Which again, just makes God small. Because the real good news is that God has come here to be with us, that God is on the move because God loves the world. And that God is doing something much better than we could ever realize, because God is much gooder than we could ever realize, that God is so much greater than we could ever realize. As we come to see this and trust this and experience this, it starts to change everything. And so with all of that as background and review and preamble, let us finally start to turn in our Bibles to Exodus chapter 2, verse 23. 
This is the calling of Moses from the burning bush. You may know the story. Remember, prior to this, the people have become slaves in Egypt. Moses was born, and then he was rescued, and then he was strategically placed, positioned, so that he would be able to help free the people. And he tried on his own, and he failed. Remember, if you remember earlier in chapter 2, he's a prince of Egypt, and one day he sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, and so Moses kills the Egyptian, but then he was found out, so he ran away into the wilderness, the end. That was Moses' revolution. That was Moses' rescue attempt. That is what Moses could do on his own. Yay, Moses. Good try. So let's see what happens next. Let's see what happens when he recognizes how good and how great God is and then joins in what God is doing. As I read this passage, I do want you to be on the lookout to try and see God's goodness, His nearness, His pastoralness, His personalness. And then I also want you to look and see if you can see God's greatness, His might, His power, His holiness, His wonder. Let's read. Exodus chapter 2, verse 23. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and He remembered His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mount of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites have reached me. And I've seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. 
This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name you shall call me from generation to generation. Go assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob appeared to me and said, I have watched over you and have seen what has been done to you in Egypt, and I have promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. The elders of Israel will listen to you. Then you and the elders are to go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, he will let you go. Amen. Okay, hopefully that is a semi-familiar story. Uh, normally in a sermon on a passage like this, we would want to be focused in on Moses, his wilderness experience, then his calling, his encounter with God, and then his faithful response eventually. And all of that is important and instructive, but that is not what we're talking about today. Instead, I want us to try and rediscover who God is through this passage, that we might recognize that God is still great today and that God is still good today. And so I want us to work back through the beginning of the passage and see God's goodness. I then want us to work through the end of the passage and see God's greatness before finally arriving back in the middle to see what all this might mean for us. But we begin at the beginning. As our passage opens, the current king of Egypt dies, and these were often times of hope for the downtrodden, for the oppressed, because often when there was a regime change, when there was a new king, prisoners would be released, slaves would be set free, everyone would celebrate the new king. Notice that's not what happens in our passage, though. Instead, our hope is quickly dashed as reality comes crashing down and things end up even worse than they were before. But all is not lost because God hears, God remembers, God cares, and God comes. And notice this because this seems to be a pattern. It is often in the midst of our hopelessness and helplessness and brokenness and wilderness that God comes personally and powerfully. And that's not to say that He always does, or always comes in the way we think we want, as if we could just take control of God by getting in trouble all the time. But it is to say that we are often more aware of God's presence in those times of wilderness. All that being said, often God does seem to show up more and better in the midst of our sufferings. Which is why we're not surprised in our passage to see God coming to and calling Charlton Heston to play Moses, or the other way around, Moses to play. Um, God comes to Moses in a burning but not burned up bush, which is strange. Unsurprisingly, 
Moses goes over to investigate because what else are you going to do if you're just watching sheep all day? And then God speaks to Moses directly. It's not accidental. It's not unintentional that God shows up here and now to Moses. Because, of course, part of God being good is that God is personal, even pastoral. God cares for those who are being oppressed, for those who are hurting, for those who are lost. God, God cares about people. And even in our case, God cares for a wandering and wayward Moses. Because let's recognize just for a moment that Moses seems to be a little bit lost at this point in the story. I mean, he knows where he is in relation to home, but, but he was in a palace one minute, he's in the wilderness the next, and clearly something has happened. And so God calls to Moses by name. Moses Moses. Moses is recognized. Moses is known. Moses is loved. And we see all of this as God calls him by name. There's an intimacy here, a connection here, a closeness here. And in all of this, we are reminded over and over again of God's goodness seen in His coming, seen in His caring, seen in His calling. But then our passage also includes God's greatness, seen in His power, seen in His holiness, seen in His otherness. Because even as God invites Moses in, He also keeps him from coming too close because God is different. God is differentiated. God is distinct. And therefore, any encounter with God will leave you changed possibly forever. In many ways, this is what encounters with greatness do. And what's more, we've seen this throughout the story of the Bible. There may be a reason that the name God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is named so many times in this passage. Think about our story thus far and what happens when people encounter greatness. God has created the whole world, and then God had to flood the creation to clean up some messes. God calls Abram to, to leave his home and go to a place I will show you. He's calling him to trust. Extraordinary. That was an encounter. God calls Abraham to kill Isaac and then rescues him. That was an encounter. God wrestles with Jacob. That was an encounter. And God has saved Egypt and the surrounding areas from a severe famine by having Joseph thrown into a well and then sold and then imprisoned. That was an encounter. And of course, we still believe that God is active in the world, changing things in His ways, for His reasons, in His timing. All that to say, while God remains good, that does not make God safe, because God is still great. There's a reason that Moses removes his shoes and averts his eyes. He's not just showing reverence or being prudent, he's also scared, because he is in the presence of God Almighty. And this is what we sometimes forget, that greatness can powerfully change things. If, if I were to hand you a, a, a large box of um, dynamite or nitroglycerin, for example, 
you would probably, presumably, I would think, be very careful because that power in the box can cause a change to the thing around it. We instinctively know we would all get a little quiet. If there was just, it's under the table here, there's a giant box. We would all get a little quieter. We'd all walk a little slower. We'd all be a little bit more careful because greatness has the power to change things for good and not so much. How much more should we take care when we are in the presence of God's greatness? And it's at this point that God reveals a bit of God's larger plan to and for Moses. You see, He's going to rescue His people. He's not just going to bring them out. He's going to do it a little bit uh, dramatically. There's going to be a little bit of a flourish here uh, so that everyone will know who God is and how powerfully God saves. Even more than that, God is going to not just bring them out of the trouble they've seen, He's going to bring them into a land that He said and even promised to give them in the first place. And again, we hear that goodness again. It's kind of, this whole passage kind of goes back and forth from this goodness to greatness to goodness to greatness. Powerful to personal to powerful to personal. Which brings us back to the middle as we come to, to some of the implications for our lives. Because it's in the middle of this passage that God reveals not just His plan, but His name. He names the one who He's already named, and then He calls Him. You see, it's not just that God is going to rescue the people, but verse 8 tells us that God has already come down in order to do it. You see, the crazy part of our passage, the good news maybe of our passage, and, and really the whole rest of the Bible for that matter, is that God's goodness and God's greatness are made manifest to us by His coming to us. There's something about the person of God that always wants to be with His creation. God wants us to know His love. God wants us to feel His presence. God wants us to be more aware of Him who is with us, which is also then why God reveals God's name. I am who I am. I am who I will be. I will be who I am. Remember, names were a big deal back then. Names aren't just given, but they're also descriptive, even aspirational. There's something powerful in knowing someone else's name. There's something powerful about hearing yourself be named. And there still is today. It's harder to see, but, but we still have a little bit of it around. Think about someone you know uh, in a formal or professional relationship compared to someone you're a little bit more familiar with and intimate with. I have a different level of connection or even control to someone I call Mr. Smith or Dr. Smith. But notice what changes was when I'm at a level of being able to call them John or Jane. It's not just familiarity there. But because of our shared experience, shared lives, shared time, I can call upon them differently than someone I only know more formally. Which is just part of why it's such a big deal that God reveals His name such that Moses can call upon him directly, 
specifically, intimately, such that we can call upon God directly, specifically, intimately. Because God has revealed a part of God's self to us. But it's not just that, it's also that God is moving. He calls Moses to participate, not because God needs the help in rescuing the Israelites. Let's be pretty clear on that one. Not because he needs Moses specifically. Remember, Moses has failed pretty dramatically so far. But maybe because God knows that Moses still needs some rescuing too. Maybe God calls Moses to help, not because God needs help with the Egyptians, but because Moses needs some help from God. Remember, Moses is out here in the wilderness tending sheep. Clearly, Moses could be doing a little bit more. But then something happened. It threw him off track. He failed. He got scared. He wasn't enough, and he ends up in the wilderness. And now we see God coming to Moses and saying, I'm going to send you to Pharaoh. And you can hear that self-doubt in Moses. Who, who am I to go? I mean, did you see the, the first, I mean, it's, it's so bad. Why would, you, why would you send me? That doesn't make any sense, God. Who am I that I should go? Which is strange because God, the great, the good, just called him by name Moses, Moses, seconds ago. And now Moses is saying, who am I? But notice God's answer to that question, I will be with you. I can't help but wonder if God is adding this to Moses' name, renaming him as it were. Who are you? Who are you? I am. I am. And I will be with you. I'm left wondering, are there times in our lives that we need to hear this again or see this again? I wonder if there are times when we are in that same kind of wilderness. Who am I that I should go? But God, you know how many times I've failed. God, you know how much has weighed upon me. You know how much I'm not doing well right now. Who am I? And yet, the question of this passage is, do we believe that God is big enough still? That, that God is good enough still? That God is still great enough to help us even in our pain? or to hide us from our shame, to give us hope when we doubt, to hold our griefs, to calm our fears, to comfort our worries, to shelter our lives, to save us. Do we still believe He's good, and do we still believe He's great? I wonder, do we need to hear again God calling us by name and remembering even us, the one who I am with? the great God of the heavens and the earth, the good God who shepherds and rescues even the lost and the wayward. Because this is the God we serve. This is the God we follow. This is the God we worship. 
one who can't be contained by the heavens themselves, and yet one who is intimately near to us. Everything changes as we start to re-recognize that God is always bigger, that God is always greater, that God is always more good than we could ever expect or imagine. And as we come to accept this ever-expanding vision of God, we receive a deeper sense of God's love for the whole world. We receive a deeper hope that God is still moving in His world, and we receive a deeper comfort that God will meet even us in our times of wilderness. And that makes the gospel start to grow bigger again, becoming more good, becoming more great, like God. Let's pray. Lord God, forgive us for when we think small thoughts of you. Forgive us when we try and domesticate you. Forgive us when we try and put you in a small little box that makes sense to our meager minds. Forgive us for our tendency to make you too small. Instead, Lord, we ask that you would help us have new visions of who you are, your goodness and your greatness, your power and your personalness. We pray that you would help us recognize just how big you are and yet also how much you care for us intimately. And also how you care like that for everyone else as well. Lord, we thank you that you are a God who comes to a Moses in a wilderness. We thank you that you are a God who saves people. We thank you that you are a God who wants to be known even by us. We thank you that you wanted this so much that you sent your son, Jesus, to again come to us, to be with us, so that we might be more aware of you, so that we might be with you better. We pray all these things in his strong name. Amen.